Again, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, that is on page 871. Luke chapter 12. I'm actually going to start in verse 13. Uh, we looked at this last week, but I'm going to read uh, verses 13 to 21 as well. Read them again because it's very uh, fitting with the passage for t- this morning, uh, 22 to 34. So I'll be reading Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Jesus tells this jarring parable 
of this rich man and then gives the explanation of it. And I think it is very fitting for this time of year, as we talked about last week, with commercialism that we see all around us, right? Black Friday and now Cyber Monday coming and Christmas right around the corner. Yet there is, in the midst of all of that, this longing for something more. And that's what we have been mentioning as we talk about Advent. When you look at the front cover of your worship guide, there's a quote from the book that we're handing out here. Christmas We Didn't Expect by David Mathis. He says, Christmas is supernatural, and our secular society is starving deep down for something beyond the natural, rarely admitting it, and not really knowing why. Christmas taps into something hidden in the human soul and woos us, even when it's inconsistent with a mind that professes unbelief. This idea of inconsistency is something we've been talking about quite a bit. The inside not matching the outside. It's been an emphasis these past few weeks. Jesus in chapter 11 exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And we've seen these two corresponding realities, really two sides of the same coin. It's that what's on the inside will be seen and will be revealed on the outside. He talks about this in that first section there. In chapter 12, talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, nothing's covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The second corresponding reality is that what is seen on the outside reveals what's actually on the inside. And those were truths expressed that we saw in those four warnings from Jesus that we looked at last week. Each one of those sections had a, had a warning associated with it. The fourth one was in verses 13 to 21, which we just read. And the warning was, be careful where you store your treasure. And we briefly looked at Jesus' parable of the rich man. Read it again this morning again, because our main text for today is really the explanation of that passage. And it's the application of it for the followers of Jesus. So let's just briefly walk through that again, verses 13 to 21. Jesus is responding here. He's been teaching, and he's talking to his disciples, and there's, there's all these crowds gathered around. And as someone in the crowd approaches him and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. To which Jesus responds in verse 14, who made you a judge, or who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he turns from talking to this man, and he talks, it says to them. It's at, he's at least talking to the disciples, maybe talking to the whole crowd so that all can hear how Jesus is going to respond to this man. And the warning comes in verse 15. This verse is very important because the rest of what follows is really going to come from this verse. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Then he tells the parable in verses 16 through 20 of the rich man whose land produced plentifully, and he said he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. And we talked last week how Actually, the the problem wasn't that his land produced plentifully, right? That was a blessing from the Lord that he had all these crops, presumably to share with other people, right? And actually, needing more places to store them wasn't even really a problem, right? Because, again, he could have built more places and stored them and provided for other people, right? He could have been generous with what he had. So what was the problem, It was the attitude of not acknowledging God and not being diligent about the state of his soul. What does he say there? 
I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But the reality was is that he didn't have many years, right? He had no years and no months and no weeks and no more days, right? God said, this very night, your soul will be demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He lost everything that night. He lost all his stuff, and he lost his soul. The summary warning to that entire parable then is in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, it didn't say much about covetousness last week, but let's think about that a little bit more. Because it's really the main thing, it's the main sin that's being addressed here by Jesus. And the scriptural witness against this sin is quite strong. When we think about covetousness and the command not to covet, what do you immediately think of? Ten Commandments, right? Commandment number 10, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You should not desire those things to have those things. You should not desire those things in your heart. That's a pretty early example in the Bible, right? Exodus chapter 20, second book in the Bible. But it's actually not the earliest example we see of covetousness. In Genesis chapter 3, right after Satan tempted Eve and told her that she wouldn't die if she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that her eyes would be opened, this is what we read. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was be to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You know what that word for desired is there? It's the same Hebrew word for covet, okay? She coveted what was not hers. She desired something that did not belong to her and that God had actually explicitly told her not to take. This is the sin attributed to Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. And J.C. Ralph says, It is a sin which ever since the fall has been the fertile cause of misery and unhappiness on earth. Wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envying, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may, near, may nearly all be traced up to this fountainhead. So it's a pretty big deal, right? Such a big deal that Jesus warns us that covetousness could cost us our souls. Have you ever really stopped to think about that? God could demand your soul this very night. So be on your guard and do not lay up for yourself treasures here on earth, but be rich toward God. That is what verse 21 is all about. That is the meaning 
of the parable. And it's what Jesus explains to his disciples in verses 22 to 34 as he unpacks the meaning of it with some powerful illustrations. So we're going to look at this this morning in two parts, verses 22 to 34. If you're taking notes, it's really the two halves of verse 21. Uh, The first part is how not to lay up treasure for yourself, treasures for yourself. So how not to lay up treasures for yourself or how not to lose your soul, okay? That's the first part. That's in verses 22 to 31. Second part, and I'll repeat these as we go. How, how to be rich toward God or how to save your soul, verses 32 to 34. First, how not to lay up treasures for yourself or how not to lose your soul. The warning in verse 21 is followed by this exhortation in verse 22, and then the reason for the exhortation in verse 23. The exhortation, Jesus says, therefore, so he's tying what he's about to say right back to what he has just said in verse 21, right? Don't lay up treasures for yourself, but be rich toward God. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will put on. This first exhortation is, do not be anxious. And it's the first of four negative commands that we're going to see in this passage. Do not be anxious, do not seek, do not worry, and do not fear. All of these things are talking about the state of our hearts when we're focused more on ourselves and our own comfort and our security than we are on God and his kingdom. These are the results. We're, we're anxious, we're seeking the wrong things, we're worried, and we're fearful. The two things that Jesus talks about that we are not to be anxious about is what we will eat and what we will wear. The reason is in verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, the word life here, this is really important, I think, is translated differently than it was just translated a few verses earlier in verses 19 and 20. It's the same word as the word soul. The word soul here in the Greek is the word pasuke. It's kind of fun to say. kind of sounds like bazooka or something. Pasuke, I don't know. Um, But transliterated, this word pasuke is spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E. Psyche, right? So when he talks here about your life, it's more than just your physical life, right? Which is pretty clear when Jesus says, life is more than food and the body more than clothing, right? Your life, your soul, everything that you are, is, it's more than just the physical, right? It's your mind, your will, emotions. It's the entire being. So your life is more than just these physical needs that you have. A couple days ago, Lindsay and I started watching uh, the show. We haven't watched the previous seasons, but we started watching season six of Alone. I don't know if you guys have seen this show. Uh, It's pretty crazy. We haven't finished it yet, so please don't tell us who wins season six if you've seen it. But these people, 10 people are trying to win half a million dollars. They're dropped off in the Arctic. Uh, They have to survive as long as they can. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Uh, they need, obviously they need food, right? They need clothing. They can bring 10 items along with them. Uh, but it clearly takes a lot more than food and clothing to survive. Uh, it takes tons of mental toughness. 
It takes willpower. It takes emotional stability. You see people crying over things that you're just like, why are you crying? Well, you've been alone for three weeks in the wilderness and you're crying over this squirrel that you just killed, right? Like, it's crazy. But it's interesting. All the characters are like very earthy, right? They're all like in touch with nature. And there's been zero acknowledgement of God and his providence, except for them taking the Lord's name in vain. There's been zero acknowledgement of God. And right away you see, sorry, I might be ruining something, but I won't say names, but right away you see two of the most self-reliant people who are the toughest, right? Toughest people. You think these guys are going to make it, boom, taken out right away. And then there's this guy, Nathan. And Nathan talks about his deep connection, his deep spiritual connection with nature. He's got a moose outside of his tent one night. He's like, man, the moose will just take you out. There's no second chances, right? Like, you better watch it. Uh, One time it took him a whole day just to get a fire going, and he's exhausted. After several days, he finally catches a fish, and he's he's starving, and he finally gets this fish, and, and he works his tail off. And this is what he says. He says, humility is the number one thing you need to have out here to learn and adapt. Without it, you'll get your butt kicked by nature. That's the edited version. You'll get your butt kicked by nature. If you go into nature looking for a fight, you will get a fight. You can't outfight the infinite. But he starts and he says, humility is the number one thing needed, right? And that's like right after these two self-sufficient, prideful guys get taken out. And here's this guy going, yeah, humility is what you need. And again, even though the Lord is not in that, right, for him, the sentiment is true. How do we translate that into biblical terms? How do we make humility the number one thing as we approach our life in this world and our survival as it relates to both our physical needs and the needs of our souls? Well, Jesus tells us using two compelling illustrations. Now, remember, there are four negative commands. Do not be anxious, do not seek, do not worry, and do not fear. Those negative commands are countered by five positive commands. We'll get into those. But the first negative command, do not be anxious. This word anxious here is to be concerned, to be worried, to think earnestly upon or to meditate upon, right? So it's this idea of of being anxious. It's mulling over these things in your head constantly. It's it's thinking about them. It's meditating upon them. What is the antidote to anxiety? See it right there in the first positive command in verse 24. Consider. Consider the ravens. It's actually going to be the first word in verse 24 and in verse 27. Consider. This word means to contemplate, to observe, to understand, to think carefully about. It's the exact same thing as anxiety, right, in terms of what's happening, right? You're you're thinking over something over and over. One is just having a negative effect on you and your body and your state of mind, right? The other one is having a positive effect because you're thinking about the right things, We all have to think about something, right? We all have to think carefully. We all have to meditate on certain things. The question is, what will it be, right? What will be the things that we worry about and that we meditate on? What does Jesus suggest? Again, two illustrations. First, consider the ravens. Do not be anxious about 
what you will eat, is, was what he just said before this. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Notice the negative parallels with the farmer, right? What do the ravens not have to do? They don't have to sow their crops. They don't have to reap their crops because God feeds them. They don't have storehouses. They don't have barns to store up their goods. And God still feeds them. Just this total contrast to the self-sufficient farmer who is only relying on himself. And I think the most important word in this whole passage might be right there in the middle of verse 24. Yet, right? And yet God feeds them. And if yet isn't the most important word or phrase in this, then I think what comes after that in that last sentence in verse 24 might be, of how much more value are you than the birds? How much more? This goes back to verses 4 through 6 that we saw last week, right? Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is just hammering this home, right? You are of more value to God than the birds. And look how he cares for the birds. And then Jesus doubles down against our anxiety by asking a couple very probing questions in verses 25 and 26. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do this, do as small a thing as this, why are you anxious about the rest? Being anxious is not the solution to our problems. We could all use more time to get things done, right? How many times have you talked to someone, hey, how's it going? And the the answer has been, I wish I had more time in the day, right? We're so busy. We got so many things to do and we wish we had more time in the day, but we don't. And we can't make that happen. We can't produce more time in our day. And if we can't even do that, which it says to God is a very small thing, why are we anxious about all these other things? Then the second illustration that he gives is Answering the question, answering what he said earlier, do not be anxious about what you will put on when he says in verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. These flowers, their growth is not dependent upon their own effort. They don't toil, they don't spin. God is the one who clothes them. And this contrast with Solomon, again, it's, the, the birds and their storing was, was contrasted with the farmer. Now we see the flowers of the field contrasted with Solomon. Solomon was the king. He, he probably had the fanciest clothes that have ever been worn by anyone ever. And, and Jesus says here the, that the flowers are, are more beautiful than that. And then he expands by pointing to the image of, of this grass, which is temporary. And, and we again, we see this how much more Language in verse 28, if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? This is not a term of endearment here (laughs) when he calls them you of little faith. 
saying, stop doubting, right? Stop doubting that God will actually do what he has said he will do. He will provide for you. Jesus is telling them, he's promising them that God will provide. Now he summarizes the point of these two illustrations with two more negative commandments and a positive commandment in verses 29 and 30. The first negative commandment is, do not seek. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. The second negative commandment is, do not be worried. And the reason that he gives is, for the nations seek after these things. Here, the seeking is negative. So he's saying, do not seek these things. The nations seek these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, verse 31, seek, which is the positive command, okay? Do not seek this, but seek this. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. There are two things I want us to observe here in verse 31. Remember back in chapter 11, following the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told his disciples to ask, seek, and knock. He said that if a father has a son who asks for a fish, the father won't give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion. And do you remember what Jesus said next? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Okay, the same language we're seeing here. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Guys, this is so huge. Our Father loves us more than the birds of the air and more than the flowers of the field. And He values us. And He knows what we need. So why are we running around like abandoned children I wonder if oftentimes our problem is that we just we genuinely forget who we are. We are children of the king. And yet we run around like we belong to the kingdom of this world and not to the kingdom of God. We settle for so much less. The crazy thing, the paradox here is that we have so much stuff, right? We have everything we could want. And yet we're so empty. Because in God's economy, less is actually more. What, is, what does Jesus say? He says, seek God's kingdom and these things will be added to you. Did you catch the irony here? These things will be added to you if you seek God's kingdom. Look back at verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's the same word. You can't add any time to your day by being anxious. But if you seek God's kingdom, all these things will be added to you. Right? Well, what does it mean then to seek the kingdom, and what does it mean that these things will be added? I'm glad you asked, because that's what Jesus addresses in the next three verses. It's our second section, how to be rich toward God or how to save your soul. 
Clearly, I don't mean how to save yourself from your sin, but it's the opposite of how to not lose your soul, right? How can your soul be saved? The final negative command is seen here in verse 32. Fear not, little flock. Notice how Jesus addresses his followers. He has just said, Oh, you of little faith, which was not a term of endearment, which was an appropriate challenge to them in the midst of their anxiety. But he does not abandon them to their anxiety and to their lack of faith. Actually, precisely the opposite. Do not fear, little flock. This is a term of endearment. The shepherd is speaking to the sheep. Don't be afraid, little sheep, because I love you and I care for you and the Father loves you and he cares for you and we will provide for you. Don't be afraid. He expresses the Father's heart to them. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, think about that. It pleases God to give us the kingdom. It's crazy. What does it mean? If God is the king of the universe and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, does that mean that he's just going to give us more stuff? Well, clearly not. Some people might think so and teach that, but we do not. So how will all of these things be added to us? Well, the answer is right here, right? It's addition by subtraction. Getting the kingdom means letting go of your earthly treasures. The last three positive commands come in rapid-fire succession in verse 33. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Do you see the upside down and the inside out logic of these commands? Now, obviously, this is not meant to be taken literally. All Christians should not sell everything they own. One commentator notes that if, this, if we did take this literally, that the result would be very soon that the church would become a burden to society, which is exactly the opposite of what we are aiming for. The kingdom of God cannot infiltrate and impact the kingdom of the world if all of its servants are dependent upon the world to provide for their needs. So this language here is very clearly hyperbolic. Jesus says to provide, or literally to make, money bags that don't, that don't grow old. Clearly, there's no material that we can find on earth that we could use to make a bag that will never grow old, right? That will never wear out. I mean, this would be the ultimate moneymaker on Shark Tank, right? You go and like, Mark, hey, Mark Cuban, like, I, I got this material. It's never going to wear out, right? Like, here's these shoes. You can wear them for the rest of your life. One pair, right? Like, hey, that'd be pretty nice. But that's not the point here, right? Jesus is saying that we need to locate our treasure in a place where thieves can't get it and moths can't eat it. That place is in the heavens. And the location of our treasures reveals the location of our hearts. So this is the question that I want to pose to each and every one of us this morning. Where is your heart? 
And only you can answer that question. Others may have some guesses based on what they observe in your life. And maybe they ought to say something to you if there's some inconsistency there, right? That is the loving thing to do. That's what discipleship and accountability look like. But at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you need to ask yourself before the Lord, where is my heart? Ask God, God, where is my heart? And you can't finally answer that question without also asking the question, where is my treasure? And my guess is that if you're anything like me, this is one of the most challenging and piercing questions that you can wrestle with. Where is my treasure and where is my heart? And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I hope and pray that you will consider Jesus' parable of the, of the rich man and that you will realize that God could demand your soul this very night. The question is, are you laying up treasure for yourself? Is your heart tied ultimately to the things of this world and to the opinions of other people? Or are you willing to lay all of that down and surrender yourself to the one who laid down his life so that you might live? If you are a Christian today, will you also take this challenge seriously? Will you analyze your life? Will you consider what your life communicates to the world about where your treasure is? When others see you, do they say, there's someone who's really living as if they're a citizen of another kingdom? What might that look like if the world around us would even catch the slightest glimpse of that reality. I want to close with the lines of a song that has been on repeat <laughs> for me. Uh, I shared it in an email earlier this week. It's called Christ is Mine Forevermore by City of Light. Um, this will absolutely make it into uh, songbook 3.0 uh, when we print a new version sometime in the future, but uh, I may even convince James to let us sing this some other time. The song is so fantastic, and it speaks so much to the truths of this passage. I think it's very fitting for, for Advent as well. Starts off, says, Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. But mine is hope in my redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. Mine are tears in times of sorrow. Darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel, where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven, and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. 
One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let us pray. Father, you know where our hearts are today. You know where our treasures are. You know where our fears and anxieties are. God, you know what we need. Of how much more value are we than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? God, your love for us is great. Your care for us is strong. We are Christ's forevermore, and in that truth, we rejoice. God, would you strengthen us for the journey? Would you equip us to go out into this world and to live as your ambassadors, to live in such a way that those around us see where our treasure is, and that, God, through that living, that we would have opportunities to declare the hope of Christ to people that are just running around looking for hope in all the wrong places. God, give us wisdom, give us humility, give us boldness to speak of you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.